Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, we pray that you would indeed uh, encourage us. We pray that you would um, strengthen us. Lord, we also pray that you would correct us. Lord, that you would demonstrate to us, show to us those things that are in our life that are our priorities that shouldn't be and things that should be priorities that aren't. God, that you would help us to um, truly develop hearts and minds, lives that are driven by the priorities of love and selflessness and the gospel, God. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are moving through the book of Philippians. I would invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 1 this morning as we continue through this uh, letter that Paul is writing from prison. Uh, and though he is writing it from prison, it is a letter that is full of, of hope. It's a, it's a letter that's full of joy. It's a letter that's full of uh, encouragement. And that is the subject of uh, our series as we're kind of dealing with this, this letter is where do we find encouragement? Where do we find a, a direction, um, a, a, a hope that instills courage in us, instills um, a, a purpose in us that moves beyond the tribulations, the difficulties that we face? We are in uh, very chaotic times. We are uh, in, some of us personally are going through some very chaotic situations, um, but together we are as well. And so uh, I'm hoping, I'm praying uh, that as we go through this book that the Lord uses it uh, to encourage you in your situation uh, and to help each of us to, uh, to be the people that God's called us to be. As Paul continues his letter here uh, in chapter 1, we pick up in, in verse 12, and, and he starts with the phrase, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, and, and that phrase is, it's a phrase that's actually very common in letters of this time. When Paul is writing this, his letters, he, he actually follows a pattern that's pretty common for his, for his day. Okay? I don't know uh, about y'all, but uh, when I was in high school, I had a class in which we learned how to write letters. You know, business letters, personal letters, those sorts of things. What, what, you know, how you started, how you addressed it, those uh, different elements. Well, they must have had a class like that in, the, in antiquity as well because uh, we have numerous letters from this era that, that match Paul's letters in form. And, and it's typical after, a, after the, the greeting and the salutation or best wishes to then move into uh, the main point. And the main point is usually designated by that sentence, I want you to know. This is why I'm writing this. This is what I'm, I'm trying to get across to you. And what Paul wants us to understand, what wants us to, to get across, is that what's happening to him, he says, has actually advanced the gospel. In other words, his imprisonment, the difficulties that he's facing, God has used to spread the word. And we see in that phrase, we see that a big part of how Paul is able to deal with his situation, with his circumstances, is through having the right priorities, having the right focus. Where is his focus? Because if his focus were just on his imprisonment, that would be a cause for uh, depression, I would think. You know, you're sitting here, 
you, you feel like God's called you to this ministry or that ministry or to this task or that task. You know there's things to do. Paul is clearly a, an individual who is a go-getter, a, a person who uh, is very task-oriented. That's his mentality. That's his mindset. We see that uh, both before his conversion and after. Okay, he's driven by that task, and yet here he is in prison, locked in a room. And I can just imagine somebody with that mentality, that mindset, sitting there going, there's got to be something I can do. There's got to be some way I can get out of here. Okay, but he, but he doesn't go that route. Instead, he uses this time to write numerous letters to churches that he had planted to, to continue to develop his own thoughts about how Christ works and how how Christ fits into uh, God's overarching salvation history and, and plan, how Christ relates to the Old Testament. He, he's developing his mind. He's still very task-oriented, but he's redirected those tasks to his current situation. And he's able to do that because he has the right priorities in place. The old story of uh, a recipe or uh, a, a recipe book, and, and then it had a recipe for cooking rabbits. And the very first instruction was what? Step one, catch the rabbit. Okay? Before you can do anything else in terms of preparing that rabbit, cooking that rabbit, you got to catch it. You got to have the first thing first. And the, the recipe for encouragement, I think, that Paul would give us is have the priorities in place, have, have a, a proper perspective of how you're to function and what should be first and foremost on your mind. And so we see those priorities playing out here in the rest of chapter 1 as he expresses and explains what's going on in his mind. Continuing on uh, with verse 13, he says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayer and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. And so we see here Paul expressing 
his priorities. And the first priority he gives us there in verses 12 through 14 is the priority of others. Paul's focus, Paul's interest in his initial expression here is that what's happening to him is benefiting others. He first talks about the lost in verses 12 and 13. He talks about how the gospel is going forward, how the gospel is being spread. He says that the imperial guard, those individuals who who hold a, a high position in the Roman military, every one of them now knows the gospel because I have been in prison here, and I take joy in that. It, it heartens Paul. It should hearten us to see the gospel spread. Too often, I think we as believers, myself included, get into situations and circumstances that, that are troubling, that are overwhelming, and we let that become our focus. We let that become what drives us and, and what directs our hearts and minds. And while that's understandable, it's also, I believe, a lost opportunity. Because what we've seen throughout Christian history, what we see in Paul's writings here, is that those who are in trouble, those who are struggling, who are able to keep their focus on Jesus, who are able to keep their focus on what Christ has done for them, bear a witness and influence a community around them in powerful ways that can't be spread in other times. People will pay attention to you when you are going through hard times. People will, will pay extra special attention to you when you are, are a believer who's going through difficult times. They want to see if there truly is a difference and how we handle those situations. What is our priority, whether it's ourselves or them, will make a difference in how we present Christ in those times of hardship and difficulty. But it's not just the lost who are on Paul's mind here. Not just the lost who are benefiting. Paul says in verse 14 that his brethren, they are also benefiting. He says, they have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word. Now think about that. A lot of times, the whole reason people were imprisoned for their belief system was the, was the supposition, was the idea that if we imprison the leadership, if we show those who are proclaiming the message that we don't like, if we show that, that, that they're arrested and they're going through difficult times, then the other believers will be you know, depressed. They'll be uh, uh, caused to, to withdraw from their witness. That was certainly uh, the desire when James was beheaded early in Acts. It seems to be the desire here is Paul is in prison. But Paul says, because I've been able to, to keep my focus on Christ and my focus on others, that those who I work with, those who I've served with, they're preaching even harder now. They're proclaiming the, the, the message even more now. And that is, uh, I think that's a goal of every believer that we live lives in, in such a way that whatever we're going through, we are encouraging others to share their faith more. That's what should be our heart. That is what it means to make disciples, is to lead those people from a place of, of fear or uncertainty or, or lack of knowledge or whatever it is to a place where they can share their faith with boldness. That should be a driving desire of ours. Not because 
it adds to our fame, but because it adds to Christ's fame. And because it helps those others be who Christ has called them to be as well. A second priority that Paul outlines is the priority of love. In verses 15 and 16, Paul is talking here about those who um, who who are out there preaching, and he's, he separates them into two groups. The group that's preaching out of rivalry, but also what the group that's preaching out of love. These preach out of love, he says there in verse 16, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of gospel. Paul talks about how uh, this group has, has a priority of, of, of acting out of love, that that is what drives them that that is what motivates them. They see Paul's situation, and because they see Paul's situation, and they love him, and he's ministered to them, and he's helped them, they're wanting to further his work. I've seen people inspire others by the love that they share with them. I've shared with you all many times the work of, of Alma Weisseidel, who was a uh, a woman who was riddled with arthritis, who was uh, well up in age, and yet she was teaching sophomore high school boys. Um, and and the, just dozens of men today who stand in the pulpit or who minister in various ways who will tell you that their ministry, their calling, their encouragement to, to serve and, and help others goes back to that woman. That her love for us has helped us to see a, a tangible expression of love that we then want to express to others as well. The priority of love is not just the priority that drives us, it's a priority that, that infects, if you will, those around us and helps them uh, to minister and to serve as well. But the other group is, is, is of a different mindset. And it's with the other group that we see that, that Paul's uh, priority is the message as well. The third priority that Paul has is that the message get out. He, he says that, I don't really care why someone does what they do, ultimately. It's good. I love it when people do it out of love. But there are those who do it out of rivalry. In other words, these are not the Judaizers of Galatians who are teaching a false gospel. These are people who are actually teaching a true gospel, but they're doing it apparently because they are rivals with Paul and they're trying to show him up. You know? Well, I can, I can plant more churches than you. I can, I can you know, share my faith more than you can. You're in prison, I'm not. I, can do it. I, can do, I have freedom to do it now. That seems to be their mindset. And again, it would be so easy for Paul to get distracted by that, to let that be something that consumes him, because he apparently, by all accounts, is a competitive person. He, he is. That's his nature. Now, he overcomes that by what? By being selfless, and he works on that. He, he tells us over and over again in various letters that, man, I, I, I want to move beyond this, you know? Uh, when, when he's talking about the, the rivalries, you know, some are of Cephas and some are of Paulus and some are of Paul. And he, he comes to the point, may, may we all be of Jesus. May we all be of the gospel. 
But the very fact that he's acknowledging that tells you it's probably something he struggled with. He was a competitive sort, it seems. And so it would have been easy in, in this environment for him to, to get absorbed and possessed by that reality. But instead, he says, you know what? If they're spreading the gospel, let them go. You know, let them go. What, what do I care? As long as the, the true gospel of Christ is proclaimed, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to find joy in that. I'm, I'm going to push forward in that. And, and that, that's so important because it's not just the issue of rivalries that's, that I think is significant here. It's the, it's the priority of the message. It's so easy for us to get distracted, to get off message. Okay? We're in the last couple of weeks before, uh, you know, an election cycle comes to an end. And, and I see so many believers from all sorts of backgrounds and perspectives. They're focused on the election. And, and just let me say, whoever wins, whoever loses, that's not the hope for America. Jesus Christ is the hope for America. Sharing the message is the hope for America. Proclaiming the gospel is the hope for America. And we need to realize that. And that needs to be the heart of our message. That needs to be the focus that we're proclaiming and what we're delivering. Instead of getting distracted by all these other things, the message needs to take priority. There's a story. Uh, well, I think most of us probably in this room know who Isaac Newton is. Okay, We all know the story of uh, you know, the, the apple falling on the tree from the tree and his whole writings and, and perspectives on the laws of gravity and and his how he revolutionized astronomical studies. But most of us don't know that the reason we know about Isaac Newton is a man named um, Edmund Haley. Edmund Haley himself uh, was very driven by uh, astrophysics, studying astrology and those sorts of things. But uh, one of his major contributions was his influence on Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton uh, apparently was not a very driven individual. Okay, he, he was one of those who was real gifted, real knowledgeable, really um, he, he had a lot of wealth himself, a, a lot of potential, but he wasn't from all accounts, he wasn't driven. Okay? He, he, he just, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and that's going to be enough. And, and Haley stepped in, and, and he, he encouraged Newton to, to publish the things that he was discovering, the things that he was thinking about. He, he proofread his book, correcting some of the mathematical errors and preparing ge geometrical figures to, to support his discoveries. And he coaxed Newton into writing his greatest work, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. So much so that Haley himself paid for the publication of the book, even though Newton had the money to do it. Haley's the one who paid for it. Historians call it one of the most selfless examples in the annals of science. Newton began almost immediately to reap the rewards of prominence. Haley received little credit. He did use the principles that he and Newton had worked on together to, to, to chart the course of a comet. And every 76 years, we talk about Haley's Comet. 
But really, he faded into the background, and Newton became this significant figure in mathematics and astronomy. We need to be a people who are like Haley, who was what? He was driven by the message. Now, his message was mathematics. His message was astronomy. His message was that the world needed to know these important truths. And so whether Newton got the credit or somebody else got the credit, Haley didn't care, just as long as the message got out there. And that needs to be our mindset as well. Just as John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. Or, or Paul's great friend Barnabas, who was constantly encouraging people, bringing other people back who had been ostracized, such as John Mark and others. We need to be of a mindset that says the message is what matters. Let's get it out there. Let's proclaim it. The fourth priority that Paul brings out is the priority of salvation. Paul had developed and was developing here in his imprisonment the long view of suffering. That is the, 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 the value of the suffering he was going through. He's already expressed some of that in the fact that the gospel's going forward and so forth. But he, he's, he's also seen the value of it on a personal level. And he talks about the, the, the reality in verse 19. He says, because I know this will lead to my salvation. Now we need to understand that, that Paul doesn't mean justification in that sense. When we talk about salvation, we talk about the three senses, the three the three moments, if you will, of, uh, of salvation. Justification, that moment when we're transferred from death to life. When Christ's blood is applied to our circumstance and we are washed clean and we stand before the Father as new creatures. That's justification. Then you have sanctification. This is the process. It's not really a moment. This is the, the journey that we take from the moment of justification to the moment of glorification. This is our maturing. This is our growing. This is our coming to understand God better, coming to understand our task better, coming to understand our role better in God's plan and God's design. And then ultimately we will have glorification, which is that moment when we are, are transferred from our present frailties and weakness to the, the eternal status that God has in mind for us. And that third element is what Paul has in mind here. That's the salvation he's talking about. He's saying that, that just as he said earlier in chapter 1 that the work that God began, he will complete. Paul is saying the work that God has begun through this suffering, through this struggle, through this situation will be completed as I journey through this sorrow, through this grief. My salvation will be completed through what God is doing here, through the encouragement I find from you, through the encouragement I offer to you. And so what Paul is talking about here is that this long view of salvation, that it's not just the moment. And, and again, I, I think probably the one of the biggest mistakes that evangelicals have slipped into is focusing upon the moment of justification to the detriment of the other aspects of salvation. 
Christianity was never meant to be a moment where a decision is made and then the rest of life goes on without it. Salvation has always been the long view from a biblical standpoint. That without sanctification, without glorification, justification hasn't happened. It's the perspective of Scripture. And to understand that and to see that is to see that our priority has to be that journey. That journey of discovering who God is, discovering who we are more fully, more completely. That journey of, of helping our brothers and sisters grow in that process. That as we lean on these things, as we lean on that truth, then we begin to be what? Encouraged that whatever situation we're in, it's what? It's working toward that end goal of God being manifested in our lives. That the situations where we have, that, that what? All things come together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose. What is that good that God's talking about there? It's that expression of that salvation. That's what God is bringing all things together for. Whether we suffer, whether we're blessed, whatever it is, we are experiencing growth in God and coming to understand Him better. That has to be a priority of ours. To stay stagnant is to be dead. We are living organisms, both spiritually and physically, and we need to be growing in that reality, closer to God and who God made us to be. And so all of that comes together with the last priority. And the last priority is really the first priority. And that is Christ. Paul makes it very clear there in verse 21. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Everything I'm about, Paul says in that one sentence. Everything that I am is Jesus. He is the center. Whatever Christ wants, whatever Christ wants, that's my priority. That's who I am. That's what drives me. I, I want to be with Christ. And whether that means being fully with Christ in the glorified uh, reality of death or being with Christ in this life, with Christ is where I have to be. He wants to see Christ glorified. He says, I come to you, and I express these things. I long to depart and be with Christ, and, but, I, but I stay here. I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boast, boasting in who? In Christ Jesus may abound. Wherever I'm at, Jesus is the center. And I'll be real honest, I'm not there yet. I wish I could say, yes, Christ is the center of everything that I do and everything I want to be, but he's not. He's not. I get selfish. I get self-focused. Or I get focused on, on family or, or the realities of this life or my job or, or whatever it is, and, and I let the realities of Christ slip to the background of who he's called me to be. But I think as we begin to, to understand these priorities, selflessness and love and the message and salvation, we'll begin to see that Christ really is the center, that we can't accomplish any of those things 
we can't be selfless. We can't express real love. We can't focus on the message. We don't know what salvation really is if Jesus is not at the heart of it. If Jesus is not what's driving us. When I think of Paul's statement there, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Again, I don't know that I'm there. I like life. I like what I'm going through. I like what I'm dealing with. I like my job. I like dealing with students. I like dealing, relating to y'all. I like this life. And sometimes I think I hold on to it too dearly, too completely. I've met others who are ready to go, and they're ready, but they're not ready to go because Christ is at the center, or their love for Christ is what's driving them, but they're being driven by weariness. Neither of those is an expression of what Paul has in mind here. Paul is trying to get us to see that our connection to Jesus, our relationship to Jesus, is what brings meaning and hope and purpose to every aspect of who we are, including our death. That Jesus is the reason. It is my prayer, it is my hope that all of us get to that point where we acknowledge, where we live out the truth that Christ is most glorified in us. He is most precious when He is most precious to us, more precious to us than life can give or death can take. That is our drive, that is our purpose. And we trust that all of our situations, all of our circumstances, God is using to that end. Francis Chan tells the story of a dinner he had with a man in Seoul, Korea. This man was one of 23 missionaries who were held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan in July of 2007. And he said that, that as he was there during this time, the Taliban executed two of the missionaries before a deal was reached with the government of South Korea and the missionaries were released. And so they were living there in fear of this death, that that was a very real possibility. They, the Taliban had already killed two. But the man, as he related the horrors of being locked up in a cell, knowing that martyrdom was a strong possibility, he, he also shared that it was an amazing time that they had when they were all in prison together. Each of the 23 missionaries had surrendered their lives to God and, and wherever God wanted to go that night and told them they were willing to die for his glory. There was even an argument over who would get to die first. One of them had a small Bible that the missionary secretly ripped into 23 pieces so each one could glance at Scripture when no one was watching. And there in that cell, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, got them through 40 days of imprisonment. But one of the most fascinating things about Chan's discussion with this missionary was he said that, that now that they're back in Seoul for a while and that several of the team members have gotten together and they've talked. And all of them 
have uttered the phrase, don't you wish we were still there? That several of them had experienced such a deep kind of intimacy with God in the prison. With the fear of death hanging over them, with their captors enslaving them there. That they hadn't been able to recapture that in their lives of comfort back in Korea. I'm certainly not advocating that we pursue difficulties and hard times. But I think part of what this story communicates to us is that when God's all you have, that's when you truly begin to understand that God's all you need. And in our own lives and in our own walks, our own journeys here, in the comfort that we enjoy. And I know many of you are going through health issues and, and probably some financial issues and other things, and so comfort may not be the first word that comes to mind in terms of your life, what you're experiencing. But relative to where we could be, we all are enjoying some level of comfort. And what we need to recognize is that even in our comfortable lives, at the end of the day, Christ is what we need. Christ is all we need. As C.S. Lewis said, to have Christ, the person who has Christ in everything has no more than the person who has Christ and nothing else. Because Christ, at the end of the day, must be our priority. May God make it so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray that you help us in the midst of our comfort, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of the variety of things that we face and deal with every day. God, may we grow in the knowledge of you to the point that where we can sincerely say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Not because we're leaving behind a painful life, but because in that moment we'll be closer to you than we ever believed possible. God, may that be our heartbeat. May that be our priority. To live in such a way that when people see us, they see you. Correct us, Lord. Guide us. Convict us of those things and those situations in our life that are present and shouldn't be. Comfort us, even in our failures, Lord. Help us to see that you are always with us, that you don't abandon us, and it's in our connection and relationship to you that we can find a future and a hope and an encouragement. 
We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.